Uh, just to remind us, I'll pray, open us up, and then I'm going to read the whole psalm, and then we're going to make observations, of, uh, good, bad, or indifferent. If you've got general questions about Psalm 22, um, then we will do that, and then we will just basically take it uh, a little more line by line this week. Um, psalm 22, I think, is the longest psalm that we've done so far uh, this summer. And so we're going to be looking at all 31 verses. We're going to explain the poetry, we're going to understand it in context, and then see how it has connections into the New Testament. So if you've got your Bible, Psalm 22, where we'll be, let me pray for us, and then we will dive into it all. Father, I thank you that we are getting rain right now, even as we speak, and had not anticipated it. And God, we thank you that you are good and that we can trust your goodness and your wisdom um, not just only for our lives, but also for our needs um, and how you make the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And God, I just thank you that you are good. And God, I pray that even as we look at Psalm 22, that we would be able to see your goodness and that we would be able to be convinced of your goodness so that we might declare it to others. And that God, that you would be honored by our attempts to understand. God, we pray that you would send your spirit to help us in that uh, endeavor and that we would be edified through this process. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. I am again reading from the ESV. I know we've got some New King James. we got some King James. we got some NIV. we got it all smattered across there. There's a couple of places where we are going to look at just a couple of words that I know are probably going to be translated differently. I'll try to highlight those as I'm reading. Um, but if not, then uh, we'll come back and pick them up as we go. All right. Psalm 22. This is what it says. It's to the choir master according to the doe of the dawn, is what the ESV says. Does anyone else have something? The doe as in the deer. The doe of the dawn is what mine says. What does your superscript say? The deer of the dawn? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ayahleth Shalahar. A Psalm of David, the ode of singular excellence. Uh, this is what uh, see, uh, Spurgeon calls it. Uh, actually, I just the morning hind is what he calls it, like as in the morning deer. I gotta be honest with you. I don't. I don't know why. Like when I look at the rest of the psalm, I don't see any of that. But okay, whatever. Cool. There it is. This is a Psalm of David, starting in verse one. This is what he has. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and in our fathers, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried, and they were rescued, and in you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me. They make faces at me. They wag their heads. They're scoffing. Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. And let him, speaking of the Lord, rescue him. For this guy, he delights in him. Yet 
You are he who took me from the womb, and you made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a, ra- like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, like a broken piece of pottery. And my tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death." For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, and they have pierced my hands and my feet. And we're going to talk about that phrase specifically in verse 16. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Does anyone have another translation other than wild oxen? Horns of the unicorn. What? Unicorn? We're going to talk about it. Look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All of you offspring or seed or children of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring, once again, same word, of Israel. For you, or for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, and those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him, and they shall bow down all who go down into the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity or children or the generations, they shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. That's a big one. All right. So observations, good, bad, or indifferent. What sticks out to you in Psalm 22? Is there any language that you immediately identify with? It makes sense. Is there a phrase that sticks out to you? Is there something that you're like, I don't have a clue what's going on there? What's up with this unicorn? Um, Whatever, right? What's your big observations? And then we'll start working line by line. Ed, what you got? All right, so the statement there is that this is a prophecy about the crucifixion. We will go to Matthew 27 and we will see at least four explicit references from Matthew 27 back to Psalm 22, okay? There's even one from uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12 that we're going to look at here in a bit. So, here's the, uh, this is the exact same comment that we made two weeks ago whenever John made uh, the comments referring to, uh, what was it, Psalm 12 we were in? 
whatever, whatever song we were in uh, two weeks ago. Like, we need to see the poetry in context, then we will get to the New Testament, and that is where we are going, yeah? That's a good observation. All right, other observations, good, bad, or indifferent. Questions, possibly. Yeah, yours had the word for wild oxen instead of unicorn. Yeah, and the word, uh, we'll look at it here in a second. The word is ra'em, ra'em, and that is most likely an auroch, A-U-C-H, is probably the animal that's referring to in Job 29, 5 through 7. You see it being referenced again there, and it seems to be a very particular kind of animal that's like a wildebeest, kind of like an ox, but possibly something else. There's also the possibility that it's not a unicorn, it's a rhinoceros. Like literally, it, it, you can see how you get there, possibly. Either way, point is, that's weird that it says unicorn right there, right? So, hey, there it is. What else? Yep, so the question is, in verse 16, we see that David is talking about dogs encompassing me. If you look back in verses 12 and 13, you see bulls of Bashan, they're like a roaring lion. Lions mentioned a little bit later. I think what is going on there is that the lions, the bulls, the auroch, unicorn, wild oxen, whatever the animal is, and the dogs... They are representative of people because in verse 16, he says, a company of evildoers surround me. I don't think he's talking about actual, literal, physical animals. I do think he's metaphorically using them to represent those who are opposing him. And we're going to get pretty specific as to what we mean by opposing him and who they are. So I don't think he's literally talking about animals because verse 16 itself talks about a, a company of evildoers encircling him. But you are picking up, Ed, to that point, you're picking up, he's using these animals and they've got teeth and they've got horns and they're digging, right? My translation says that they have pierced his hands. The word there in Hebrew literally means to dig. Probably doesn't mean pierce, but point is like, there's something violent happening. And what we find out is it's not animals, it's people, yeah? Cool. There's a reference in Psalm 59, verse 6. They return at evening, they howl like a dog. Mm -hmm. And go around the city, and that would indicate there that it's not an actual dog, but it's behaving like one. Yeah, so Psalm 59, verse 6 is once again kind of. Uh, personifying people as animals and that they're acting like animals. They're howling like a dog. They have these ravenous mouths and teeth and horns and they bite and dig. I think that's, it's metaphoric language. Cause again, this is poetry. Like don't miss that. This is poetry, right? Cool. What other observations do you see? Other language that sticks out to you? Because there's a lot of evocative, emotive language in Psalm 22 that we can identify with one way or another.
Kelly made eye contact with me, so she's got something to say. Yeah. Okay, so let's not miss in verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then when we see there in verses 9 through 11 and 19 through 21, there's this plea for God to not like abandon him and don't be far off. Okay, we're going to have to deal with that. Okay, here's the question I would ask you, and this will hit on Matthew 27 and Jesus on the cross. This will hit on how we interpret the entire psalm. This will hit on several things. Is this psalm about God abandoning David? Is that what the psalm is about? Ed's shaking his head saying no. Who wants to throw their lot in with Ed and say no, Ed, Ed's right. Okay, we got two more saying Ed's correct. Three, four, okay. What then is this psalm about? If it's not about God abandoning David, what is it about? He feels like it. That's good. Okay. But what then is the psalm about? So verses four and five is David going like, I know I feel abandoned, yet you are holy. Verse three, verse four and five say, hey, even the fathers, they trusted in you and they weren't abandoned. Where does this psalm end? Look at the last third of the psalm. Does it sound like the first third? You've answered me. And the implication of you have answered what kind of request? To be delivered, to be rescued. That is what he is feeling. But he cries out, even though he is a worm, I don't deserve this. Verse 3, yet you're holy. I know you're holy and I am a worm. There is a gulf between us that you have no obligation to me. And what does David do? Hey, God, help me. <laughs> he still says, God, help me. Right? Okay, that's a, that's a huge like theological problem for us to think that like God is actually going to do that. Like, yeah, he does do that. And how does the psalm end up? Look at, let's just look at some of the language from verse 25 on. You tell me, verses 25 through 31, does any language stick out to you that sounds, if nothing else, at least like the opposite of God forsaking them? Does any specific phrase stand out to you? They're going to eat and be satisfied. That doesn't happen to someone that God has forsaken and not blessed them, right? What else? What other language do you see sticking out in verses 25 through 31? Look at verse 25. What does it say? Say it again. They're praising him. Why would you praise a God who continually abandons you and does not listen to your plea? Would you be so inclined to do that? Yet David says, no, 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 we're going to praise you because you've answered the prayer, you've rescued, you've delivered, you are worthy of that. You're holy and I'm a worm, but you do answer. Yeah? What else? Verse 
the world is going to turn, which is a really critical word, by the way. They're going to turn, and what's going to be the end result of what the nations are going to do with God? They're going to worship. Once again, I would ask, why would someone worship a God who continually abandons them and doesn't have any intention to save or reconcile? You wouldn't, but yet that's where we end. So just because, Kelly, like you say, this is evocative language, that's not what the psalm is about. It's not. That's where it starts. That is, in fact, how David may feel because of this encircling group of people who are doing violence to him. But that, that's not actually where the psalm ends. It resolves, is the technical term, it resolves in praise and worship of God because he has acted on David's behalf. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, so the comment there is David is about a thousand years ahead of Peter in the content of the same confession of Lord, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, who else are we to go to, right? And David is expressing that poetically, but it's also we're getting back to the same point of he he knows this is how he feels, and there's reason to believe that that what he's feeling is accurate. Let's, let's not discount that. But what he is, the point is of the psalm is that it is going to resolve differently than it began. Yeah? That word, just so y'all know, in uh, verse 27, the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. That word is shuv, shuv. That word turn can mean turn, or it can mean like overturn. Literally, this is the, the word, the active word in Jonah, whenever he gives his garbage sermon in Nineveh. In 40 days, God's going to overturn you. He means he's going to throw you in the fire. But what they hear is, oh, no, 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 in 40 days... We're going to turn because that word also carries the idea of repent. And what 22:27 says is the nations collectively will turn, repent, and they will come to the Lord. And where that leads us is worship. Yeah? Yeah, so the comment there by Dave is that there's a certainty that even, that ultimately we will serve the Lord, right? So if you're thinking Philippians 2, that the name that is above every other name, every knee will bow and tongue confess, like that is ultimately where we resolve, even if where we stand now doesn't quite look that way. That even the long arc of history still lands with us serving the Lord, yeah? Is that what your comment is? Yeah. Good. I like that connection. All right, other big points that you see in Psalm 22, because I think there's a little bit more that we can kind of walk through point by point that would give us a little bit more detail. And then when we get to the New Testament, it brings about something new for us. Any other big observations or questions, comments you want to bring about in Psalm 22? Ed. 
the next generation, right? Yeah. Um, so in verse 30, what the Lord is doing is going to continue to be told, right? Which is exactly where we were in verses 4 and 5. Hey, and you, our fathers, trusted. How does David know that? Someone told him. And David, I think, sees himself in this line of like, oh, I'm in that story as well. He's doing that for me. And what God does for me, someone else is going to learn about. And what's the result of that dude hearing about what God did for David? It's the exact same thing David was remembering in verse 4 and 5. Hey, our fathers trusted in the Lord and you delivered them. Instead of David's story that we're looking back to, David's looking at the Exodus. He's looking at all sorts of things, right? But we just get even more ammunition to be able to pile up here. Yeah? That's a good comment. Other final thoughts before we kind of move into going through the poetry. Yeah, proclaim his righteousness in verse 31. To whom? So David, verse 30, says, hey, there's going to be another generation that we're going to teach. They're going to learn it. You know, my three-year-old is over there. He, he's not ready to hear it yet, but he will. But he even goes a step further and says, hey, there's even generations who are not even born yet. They're going to hear it. It always reminds me of uh, whenever day, uh, Jesus has his um, feet anointed by this lady that's a nobody in the people's eyes around him. And then he kind of turns to everyone and says, hey, what she's done, they're going to be talking about for literal millennia. And I know that's true because I just said it, right? Like just because no one remembers your name specifically, just because that type of thing may not be at top of mind, God doesn't forget. And he can use those actions even in what we might observe as like an obscure thing. Yeah? All right. So let us work through the poetry I didn't write much on there, so no big deal. All right, we're going to take it in three big chunks, 1 through 11, 12 through 21, 22 through 31, okay? Basically about 10 verses each. Um, I will tell you, I'm going to hand y'all out a little slip here at the end. It's going to give you a little more detail, but my point is I think we can clearly see what's going on with the psalm by breaking it down in big chunks from here. So here's what I see is going on. In verse 1, this is what David says. God, it sure does seem like you've left me, <laughs> right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That line is picked up by Jesus on the cross in Matthew 27, specifically in verse 46, okay? So just to preview where we're going, we will not be able to separate what we understand about Psalm 22 from what Jesus does with it in Matthew recounts. However, my point is, like, let's just hold off on that. Know that we're getting there. But what David is feeling initially is that he is abandoned by God. Why are you so far from saving me? Even though I keep asking you, where are you? What's going on, right? Oh, God, I cry by day and you don't answer at night, but, you, but I find no rest. Verse 3, yet you are holy. What does the first line in your translation say? Mine says, yet you are holy. Say again, but you are holy, but you are holy. You see the contrast there? David, I think, implicitly is recognizing like, yeah, I feel this way, but there's something else that's going on because I still recognize you are holy, right? 
And we're going to see there in verse 6, he's going to say, I'm a worm and not a man, right? When you take verse 3 and verse 6, why might David feel like a worm? Say that again, Mindy. You can't get higher than holy. And is David at that level? He's not at that level. He is not holy compared to God. Exactly. He's in the dirt. What puts him in the dirt, as it were? Scorned and despised by all, right? So that's a good translation because it picks up on like what is uh, his experience of how people see him and what they do to him, which we'll pick up in verse 15, 16, 17 range. Ed? You can't get higher than holy and you can't get lower than a worm. You can't get lower than a worm, right? So what is it that puts David in that position of being a worm? Sin, right? And compared to holiness, like, man, if you're not perfectly holy... You're categorically other. You're a sinner, right? And that's David, which is why it's important for us, here, I'll just write it up here again, that word shuv for repentance is what we see later in verse 27. Repentance implies what? And repentance from sin, right? So it starts with David recognizing, I feel separate from you, you are holy, I am sinful, and this is what everyone says about that. I am scorned and despised. There are a bunch of evildoers who encircle me, right? We'll see that here in just a bit. So let's pick it back up there in verse 3. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. Is David? Nah, definitely not the same way, right? Our fathers trusted in you. They cried to you, and they were rescued. And then he says in verse 6, but that's not me. That's not me. I'm a worm. I'm a worm. I can't do that. But we just said a little bit ago, he actually immediately goes from God is holy. My father's trusted in you. You rescued them, but you're not going to do it for me because I'm a worm. And the very next thing he says is, but hey, go ahead and rescue me. <laughs> right? That's either like egomaniacal megalomania or supreme trust. Right? That even though I recognize I'm a sinner, the only person I can appeal to is God, and he's holy. And that, that's just the way it is. But he will rescue, right? So let's look there in verse 6 and 7. And I'm scorned by mankind and despised by people is what uh, Sue picked up on earlier. All who see me mock me. So once again, Ed, I don't think he's talking about animals. I think these are the people who are encircling him later on. They mock me. They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. And what do they do? Ah, he trusts in God. Let God save him. Oh, this is the dude that the Lord loves. Like, the Lord will take care of him. Don't worry about him. You don't have to help him. That language is picked up in Matthew 27, verse 39 and verse 43. When they are scoffing at Jesus and they're saying, Hey, how, he, he's supposed to save all of Israel. He can't even save himself. Right? And Matthew is reading Psalm 22 and going, that's what's happening. It's, it's happening now, right there. Yeah? And then we get to verse 9 through 11. Yet you are the one who took me from my mother's womb. And that word for took is a little more strong than that. Does anyone have any other translations? It brought me safely. That word also means to be torn. 
You tore me from my mother's womb. And I think what's going on there is that David is picking up on the language of Genesis 3 when childbirth is promised to be a whole lot harder. And yet his point is, you tore me from my mother's womb, but then what immediately happens? You brought me safely through that. Ah, the worm who's worthless has already looking back at God's faithfulness and how he was delivered before there was a single thing worth saving in David. He was a child and done any great things for God, right? Probably gave his mom heartburn and morning sickness. That's what he did. That's what he contributed. And yet God saves him, causes him to trust in the Lord and that there's this security with God, yeah? So there's already a history, even for David, hey, from the very earliest onset, you were already taking care of me and my mom, yeah? So I ask again, is Psalm 22 about forsaking? No. Even in the same section, it's not. Because it ends in that section with there being a little more trust. We cool with that? All right, let me speed through this because, again, where we're going is we're going to get to the prayer topics. Paul. We don't know the timing of when Psalm 22 was written. I have not seen anyone tell with any kind of confidence this is when it was written. In fact, the question of Ed, hey, are these actual animals? <laughs> are these actual animals or are these people? Like, it would be really hard to even identify a situation where David was attacked by an animal or it was people that would correlate to what he's talking about here. So, like, there's just not even details within Psalm 22 that would give us a hint in where else it would be in Scripture that, oh, well, that was this setting. Yeah, yeah, and that comment is well taken, that if we knew it was before or after Bathsheba, then, hey, that might inform what we might believe he thinks he means by being a worm. Yeah, well taken. I just don't know the answer to it. All right, let's pick it up there in verse 11. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Okay, just go ahead and skip down to the end of verse 19, 20 range. Uh, 19, you, O Lord, don't be far off. All right, so there's going to be some structure we're going to talk about here in a bit. Look at verse 12. The bulls, they encompass me, the cows of Bashan. Uh, the cows of Bashan are some of the like most prized cattle. Um, in fact, Amos, whenever he is ripping the northern kingdom, he calls the women who live in the northern kingdom who manipulate their husbands, he calls them the cows of Bashan. And I'm like, dude, that's a sick burn. This dude just called these women fat. That's not what he's saying. I was devastated when I learned that that's not the sick burn that I thought it was. But it's entirely a different kind of sick burn because he's talking about opulence. This was the very best thing. And what happens whenever you have really good cattle like that? Well, sometimes you get bulls who are going to be ready to defend that herd, and they get kind of wild. They are these cows of Bashan that we're talking about. They open their mouths at me. They're ravening wolves. Um, I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melts within me. You can count all my ribs. Homeboy is jacked up. Whatever it is, whether it's a metaphoric description of his relationship with others or what's going on around him, or if this is David literally physically close to death, you get the picture. This is pretty bad, right? It's a pretty bad deal. Look at verse 14. I'm poured out like water. 
my heart's melted, my strength is dried up. We'll see that come up again here in just a bit in verse 19. My strength is dried up, and where that leads him is in verse 14 and 15. It leads him to the dust of death. Everyone will experience what the dust of, dust of death is. And to Ed's point, when Jesus is picking this up from the cross, even Jesus experiences the dust of death. The worst of life circumstances that lead to death, even later whenever we get to verse 29, 30, and 31, even those who cannot keep their souls alive before God. Like, I think David's saying, like, all of us are going to taste this. So whenever David is putting himself in this position and talking about an experience that all of us will have, I think, rightly, we should see, oh, this is even for me. Like, I'm going to experience some things like this, too. I don't know what the ravenous wolves or the cows of Bashan are in Joyce's life, or the dogs in Sue's, or whatever the case may be, whatever lines after me, I don't know, but eventually I will taste the dust of death, right? What is Psalm 22 about? Is it about God forsaking, or is it about him delivering? Changes how we might look at Psalm 22 a bit, right? All right, let's blow through the rest of this. 16 through 18, those garments are being torn. I am just jacked up. You can count my ribs. Like, this is not animals. These are people. Circle of evildoers encompass me, right? And then in verse 18, they count my garments or they divide my garments and for my clothing they cast lots. That is literally what happens in Matthew 27, 35, whenever they're dividing up. Hey, what do you want? Hey, let's throw the bones to see who gets his shirt that's one singular piece that's un uh that's unhemmed not sewn together unseen that's the word i'm looking for you you got it see you already know and he's picking up on that i don't know what situation this is but the point is the new testament authors pick up on that and go aha then we get to verse 19 but you O god don't be far off if my help come quickly deliver my soul from the sword and that's where we have the enemies being described but the last third of this psalm talks about the hope that David has. If you notice, we go from there in verse 21 where the worst thing is getting hooked by this unicorn, right? <laughs> right? If you're the King James, man, there's this wild ox. He's going to get me with his one horn. He's only got one and he got me with it, right? Whatever it is. Again, this is metaphoric language talking about they're after him. And the very next line in verse 21 Hey, I'm going to tell of your name to my brothers. What? I thought you were about to die. Oh, yeah, I was. I was. But I'm now in a position where I went from my strength being dried up to now it's me telling of, uh, of the brothers. Um, the word that gets used there, I skipped it back in verse 19. Uh, Eeluth literally means my strength. Whenever he says that you are my help, the language there is hearkening back to verses, uh, uh, excuse me, verse 11, when he's asking that God would not be far off from me and that his strength is dried up in 14 and 15. He's now saying, no, 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 but God is my strength. He is my help. So now I'm being delivered and I'm going to tell everyone about God's great good things he's done, right? Look in verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him, which sounds a whole lot like verse 4 and 5. That's what our fathers did. You who fear his name, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob. Y'all talked about this in Galatians last Sunday. 
for whatever reason, Paul was really hearkening on this idea of like, how frequently do you think about yourself as being the seed of Abraham, the children of Abraham? David's doing it too. <laughs> hey, you who are the children of Jacob, right? So I mean, we're like, we're not far removed from Abraham. It's the same idea. That word that gets used there is tzerah. It's a tzade, T-S, um, is that letter. But think of it, zerah is the word. That's the word for offspring, but then also later on, posterity. That word is meant to hearken back to Genesis 3. So once again, David has used language that referenced Genesis 3 with childbirth. And then here, he's referencing it again with this word that's supposed to harken back to the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And I think what David is saying is he is putting himself in that line, not as the seed of the serpent. That's the circle of evildoers around him. He is the seed of the woman, the offspring of Jacob, the offspring who create these generations who keep telling the good things about God. And he sees himself in that storyline at some level you should too but it's for a little bit of a different reason david saw himself in that storyline because of all the things we've already talked about in the first two psalms but i'll say it this way he sees what's going on in his life as a type of what will happen to that future king that was promised to come from his line which was whom jesus then jesus comes along quotes psalm 22 verse 1 and he is invoking all of Psalm 22. And what I think is going on is from the cross is Jesus enacting this and Matthew recording for us saying, yeah, all of us who are the seed of the woman who are standing in opposition to the seed of the serpent, you all will taste the dust of death. And it's exemplified by that man who dies, but does he stay dead? No. And if what's true of Jesus is true of us, you also will taste death, but guess what? You, as the seed of the woman who will overcome the seed of the serpent, you won't stay dead either, which is why you see in verse 29 and 30 and 31, they're all going to serve him. Those who have turned, repented, shuv is the word, those who repent, they recognize that their only hope is with God, right? Then whenever we leap ahead to the New Testament and we see Matthew recounting this, all he's saying is, yeah, man, if you understand what's going on in Psalm 22, there's no way you couldn't be thinking about Jesus. And then they start throwing bones for his clothes. Like, come on, that's what they were doing. Like, it was about ultimately being fulfilled in Jesus. But make no mistake, this is our story too, right? We all will taste the dust of death, yeah? And so where does this Psalm end? not in distress and not in bemoaning and wishing there was something else going on, but rather it ends with David trusting in God. Yeah? So I'll hand you all a few to pass down. I'll come around. All right, observations, questions about Psalm 22. How he shows up in verse 24? Read that for me out loud because I don't have it memorized. Somebody else read for me Psalm 22, verse 24. Go ahead. He 
He has listened to their cries for help. And that's exactly the thing that David was being mocked about. Oh, God likes this guy. Let God save him. And they're like, that ain't going to happen. But then David in verse 24 says, no, 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 that's exactly what will happen. Here's my point. The reason I handed that out to you is there is a chiastic structure. And that whole point is that everything leads and it's mirrored point for point in some way. And whatever sits right there generally is one of the main points. Well, where that leads us is the dust of death. However, normally these all match one for one with the point below. However, those first couple of points, those change, don't they? It goes from despair, and what's the last section about? Celebration, it's about worship, right? The very thing that looks like despair, but ends in celebration, is what Jesus was hung on. Right? I think that's one reason that Matthew is picking up on that, and when he sees them dudes throwing bones to try to get his clothes, I think Matthew's like, oh gosh, that's it's Psalm 22. Like this is, this is the culmination of that. And I think we should see that's us as well, yeah? All right, so where we're going to end, that's, that's, my, that's my bit of Psalm 22. Remember, the whole point, we will get to all of that poetry and understand it in context and then see it in the New Testament. The whole point is to then generate how to pray using this language, how to mirror the tone. Let me be clear. If your tone right now is, man, it really does feel like God's forsaken me, then let's pray that. Just because it's a negative emotion, which, there, by the way, there's no such thing as a negative emotion. What we perceive as a negative emotion is our perception. Those are emotions given by God. Just because you feel that way doesn't mean that's actually what's going on. However, David had no qualms about expressing that. And especially if he hadn't expressed it in that way, we would not get to how big a deal the celebration and worship is later on. So if your tone and your prayer topic is, man, it feels like things are kind of crushing right now, then let's pray that. That's fine. But what we need to do is we need to mirror the tone of the rest of the psalm and say, yet you are holy. And yet we can turn. We can trust. You can rescue. Yeah? All right, Paul, you had another comment before we got to that. Unicorns have one horn? And he says from the horns, plural, of the wild ox. Yeah. So. I don't know what's going on. And that's one reason why I look at this word ra'im as being, it's probably an auroch, this animal that's probably now extinct that got hunted to no longer existing anymore. Because there's other references in Job 29 to that exact same animal. And it doesn't have this mythical quality to it. It's probably an actual animal. We just don't know what it is. Like the doe of the dawn. Whatever that is, right? All right. Observations in general. Hey, unicorns are now extinct. Pastor Anthony said it. You heard it. We're going with that. I think unicorns have always existed. They're just called rhinos. I'm, I'm dead serious. Like, when you think about the, what it looks like, kind of like a horse, but not. And they got a big old horn sticking out of their face. Sounds like a, uni uh, a unicorn, but it also could be a rhinoceros. Yeah, narwhals, man. We're not even talking. We're talking about the water unicorn there. I like that. Yeah. All right. So Psalm 22. Observations. Now that you see it all in context, does it change the way you look at Psalm 22? 
do you see new elements of Psalm 22 that maybe when Jesus is, and by the way, a common refrain in the way that people would quote Psalms in Jesus' day, they didn't have numbers. They weren't numbered. But the way you memorized them was you memorized the first line. And whenever you are referencing a Psalm, you quote the first line and you mean the whole thing of it. So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think he's saying, okay, and I'm stopping right there because I am forsaken. I think he is invoking the entire 31 verses of Psalm 22, which lead in celebration. Say again. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Does that change the way you think about? It puts a whole pers- different perspective on mm-hmm. And Matthew does want to highlight just how bad things were for Jesus. He, he does. But... Just quoting verse 1 doesn't mean that he forgot the rest of the 30 verses that followed. Yeah? All right, other observations from Psalm 22 before we generate some prayer topics and how we're going to pray and then pray. Yeah, so the comment there is it it does kind of change and reframe our own position as the church. And and that's what I'm saying. Like, I think David is seeing himself as one step in this process of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the uh, the serpent, right? And we are inheritors of that because we are truly the seed of Jacob, the seed of Abraham because of Christ. Like, so we should not anticipate that our experience would be all that different from Psalm 22's description of whatever is going on with David in his life. Was it literal? Was it metaphoric? Like, I think it's metaphorical. Metaphoric? I think he's being, being metaphorical, but we should take wisdom from that and say, yeah, this is going to happen, and that's okay, because God is still in control. Oh, yeah, I mean, like, so the comment there is that in some countries there is still persecution and there's martyrdom, there's murder taking place. Like, yeah, of course. That's the promise. It's going to happen. The world will hate you because they're not of me, but you are, right? Ed, you got a comment there? Nope. Other comments? Okay, so the comment there is I'm talking about this being metaphorical, and that's kind of stemmed off of Ed's comment of the animals, are they for real or are they not? I think that is metaphoric because he's talking about people. However, your comment, Millie, about, well, this also could be like a real two-life situation. And that's what I'm saying, like, yes, I do agree. I just don't know what situation that is. But what we do know is the circle of evildoers... That's a colloquial way of explaining what the seed of the serpent is. It opposes the seed of the woman, those who are going to come in righteousness, right? They will stand opposed. And what are they going to do? They're going to wag their heads. They're going to mock. They're going to shame. They're going to attack. They're going to bite. They're going to claw, right? All the metaphoric language. So whatever situation it is that David's living in, I don't know precisely, but he sees himself as being part of a long line of that expression through history until it culminates in Christ. Yep. So I appreciate that balance that you're providing there. Hmm. Yes, sir. Being a valid metaphor, 
to be a valid metaphor, does it have to be accurate of reality? As in, like, he must have experienced something like this? Is that what you're saying? It's so unique that it's never going to come about in this exact way. Yeah, I see your point. I think to that point being well taken, like, I think David is describing a real situation, to Millie's point. He's using poetic language to describe it, but he's also, in a larger view of Scripture, he's describing something that he will experience, and to some degree, every person who is the seed of Jacob, the seed of the woman who is going to be opposed by the seed of the serpent, we all will experience that. And if you had any doubt, Jesus experienced it as well, and he tasted death, right? So uh, to your point, like, yeah, it has to be real and grounded in reality, but also this is poetry, so he's going to describe it in a little bit of a poetic way. All right, so let's generate some prayer topics. How can we now pray and mirror the language or the tone of Psalm 22? And like I said, don't give me this, oh, everything's great, God's going to deliver. If that's what you're feeling is that it's rough, then your best thing is to pray that way because here's the deal. God already knows. Don't think he's dumb. He already knows you're feeling that way, and so, like, oh, no, things are good. Like, you're making a mockery of God's knowledge there, okay, like we are. So, topics, what do you think? Praises. Praises in what sense? I know you you ought to know at this point I'm gonna follow up. Give me two specific things to praise God for, either that mirrors the tone and language or just from your own experience. Joyce? I'm sorry. Give me two things, because you said praises, plural, so we've got to have two. Either from David's psalm or from your own experience. Like let's be precise. Okay, give me one. Salvation. Anthony has said this on more than one occasion. I have said it on more than one occasion. When's the last time you legitimately thanked God for saving you? Novel thought, right? So, praises for salvation. That is a garbage S. That looks better. Salvation. What about from the language of the psalm? How can we mirror either the language or the tone from the psalm that we can praise God for? Somebody else. Past faithfulness, which is exactly what Joyce is talking about in her own experiences, but we're talking about in history. Ran out of room, so past faith, past faithfulness, yeah? So when we pray, it could be, God, thank you for setting the example of how you save by saving Israel and Egypt. I think that is an accurate way of remembering and invoking the tone of Psalm 22, as well as Genesis and excuse me, Exodus. R.O. Yes, sir. Yeah, we're going to get there. That's the very next psalm. We're not looking at it. But that is the very next psalm. So the Lord is my shepherd, right? Cool. All right, give me at least two more. Ed. Uh, you have answered. You have answered. 
So it implies God hears. It implies God cares. It implies that he's able to do it and that he does. But you see like that one idea now carries at least four different ways we can skin that cat. And we're still getting to Psalm 22. God hears prayer, right? That was what you said, hears or answers? He answers, right? And so you see how when we pray, God, thank you for answering prayer, you hear it, you're able, you care, you are in fact mirroring the tone of Psalm 22, right? Give me one more topic and then we're going to bust it out into our time of prayer. Sue. Strength to get through the fire. Okay. What verse might you be looking at for that? There you go. Oh, man. Somebody said 10, 11. And then also, you, Lord, are my help in verse 19. That same word for help is the same, is literally means my strength. You are my strength, which is right here, right? Yeah, right. So God can be our strength. God is not far off. So God not being far off we can pray that at least two different ways. God, thank you for not being far off. Or if you feel like he is, hey, God, please don't be far off. Show me how close you are. Those are two very different expressions of the same idea. Paul, you had one that we walked on. <laughs> yeah. Which metaphor? I've used a couple. Skin in the cat. <laughs> Peter might get after us. Peter. Right. Cool. All right, so let me just recount these for us. Oh, that's not what we want. So we've got a couple of different ways to pray. We can pray and have praises, thanking God for past faithfulness and salvation. We can pray, like R.O. said, God, thank you for being my shepherd that you are the one who cares for me. As Ed said, that God answers our prayers. He cares, he hears, he's able, he's willing, right? The strength to carry on through the difficulty and that God's not far off, right? Cool. So what we got is however long. We're going to pray for however long. I'm going to ask uh, Ms. Joyce, would you mind starting us off? Would you be willing to start off? Excellent. So Ms. Joyce is going to start us off, and then whenever you feel like you got something to say, pop in and say it. And then we'll pray for however long this thing goes. And again, remember, the whole point of this series is to understand the poetry, but then to generate how we can pray, mirroring the tone and the content of that psalm, seeing how it relates to us. So Joyce, start us off, and then whenever I think we've kind of exhausted our, our verbal prayers for, um, for us to hear, then I'll close this out. Yeah? Even as we sit here, recognizing that you are great, you are faithful, you answer our prayers, you give us strength. God, we also know that uh, for many of us, even in this room, we might be suffering. We might be feeling as though you are distant and far off. We might be feeling as though we have been rejected in some way and people remind us of that. God, we, I just recognize that some of us need encouragement because we do feel a certain way. And that may not be exactly what's going on 
um, in reality that we are in fact feeling cut off and distant from you, but we do feel that way. But God, what we do know is that you are faithful. You are, as Psalm 22 ends, the one who is worthy of being praised. You are the one that the righteous ones will gather around and say, you're worth it. God, even as we sang recently promises that the close of a service, God, that you're the God of Abraham. You are the one who is the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, of Joseph, of David, of Solomon. God, you are the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see your past acts of faithfulness to meet us even in our uh, wormness, that we are low because of our sin. The God that we can turn, we can repent, we can trust in you because of what Christ has done for us. You have demonstrated that you love us and that you are faithful in the past, whether it be the exodus or the return from exile or from Golgotha. God, you are the one who shows that we can trust in you because you have made a way. So, Father, I pray that we would be encouraged, even if we feel Psalm 22.1. God, I pray that we would land on Psalm 22.31, and that we would tell others of what you have done, that we would celebrate you, that we would put our trust in you, not because we're just going to put on a facade and act like these bad things aren't happening, but rather so we can say we know that this is the lot that many of us experience in life, but you're still worth it. You are. As a father, I pray for any of us who are struggling. I pray for those of us who have family members who are struggling, who have friends who are struggling. God, if we would uh, be so bold to share Psalm 22 with them and explain and see along with someone who needs an encouragement, God, I pray that you would send your spirit to encourage us to do that. I pray that you would send your spirit to cause us to want to do that. And if we just need to be encouraged, God, I pray that we are because of what our brother David has written, seeing himself in a long line of the seed of the woman who is going to experience suffering. Uh, God, that we experience that as well. But we know you are holy, and we know that you rescue and that you save. And that's because of what uh, your wisdom in eternity determined should happen, and because of your love and motivated you to send your only son to die on the cross for our salvation and that we can trust in him. And so, Father, we do. We recognize that we must repent and trust in your son and that that brings glory and honor to you. And it also brings um, benefit for us. And I'm thankful for that. God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for what David has written for us. I pray that you would use this next week to enforce it in our lives and drive it down so that we might understand Go read Matthew 27 and uh, see how this culminates in Christ. Uh, but God, we tra pray and we trust and we confess that we love you and that we need you. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Next week, Psalm 32 is where we're going to be. Um, and we will just continue this pattern. Yeah? 32. Psalm 23 is the one that immediately follows, but we're not looking at it. We're going to skip right past it. We're going to go to Psalm 32. That's what we're going to do. Oh, yeah, only 11 verses. It's super easy. <laughs>